In Jesus' name. All right. Good morning, everybody. I bet if I had a cute baby, you would like me more as well. That is so not fair uh, to follow that. Uh, so good to uh, have the Stuckies with us this morning, and so good to have you here. The Lord tested our New Year's resolve by waking us up to a dreary, rainy morning, but you pushed through and you showed up, so way to go. Um, recognize that uh, the season ahead is probably going to be a, a bit of a challenging one as we adjust to some new rhythms here and deal with uh, all the crazy that comes in a winter season. Typically, I uh, want to remind you that we're adjusting our schedule next week. And I kind of don't want to tell you what the new service times are, just so you'll show up on time. So if I, you don't know, then you'll at least be here on time for the second service uh, next week. So just plan to show up when you're currently getting here, and you'll be here for the second service, and it'll be awesome. If you uh, actually own a clock or wear a watch or have a phone or any of those things, uh, there are bo boards around the facility that tell you what the service times are, what core classes are going to be offered during those hours. That change will happen next week. So we'll kick off core, youth, kids, all that will start back next week as well as we'll have our regular family meeting that would typically be tonight, first Sunday of the month. We'll have that next week, uh, dinner and our family meeting. So go ahead and flag that uh, on your schedule. This morning, we're kind of dealt a weird Sunday, honestly. The calendar as it lands each year, uh, there's a you know, question, what do you do on January 2nd? Do you go ahead and kind of kick off the teaching series that we're going to start and do it before many people have returned from travel and before we adjust to a big uh, change in the, the calendar, the church calendar, or do you wait? And we decided this year to wait. Um, so what I'm going to do this morning is just take uh, one Sunday and uh, preach just a standalone sermon uh, for us this morning that's designed uh, to encourage, I hope, to empower, uh, to get us off kind of on the right track as we head into the new year. And then next week, we'll pick back up in Luke's gospel where we left off last time and continue to plod forward. So uh, with that in mind, let's pray together and then we'll turn our attention to God's word. Father, we do give you thanks for your sustaining grace in our lives as we sung that we can uh, be reminded of your faithfulness. Uh, we uh, ask for forgiveness for our nearsightedness far too often, that we uh, lose focus on your uh, covenant faithfulness, the way that you're orchestrating all things uh, together for your good purposes, that our circumstances get really front and center for us and weigh us down. We pray that uh, you would give us grace this morning to allow our trust in you to trump our emotions, our feelings, uh, the circumstances that we're facing, that you would use your word to encourage and empower us to lives of faithfulness and obedience as we start a new year. And we ask that so that Jesus is known and worshiped here and around the world. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Seems to me that there are two types of people in the world, those who are motivated by fresh starts and New Year's resolutions and those who are not. And more times than not, those two types of people marry each other, right? Uh, whether you're motivated by a new year, uh, for most of us, uh, tomorrow launches a start back to some predictable rhythms uh, that define our lives. Gone are the celebrations of the holidays, and before us are the 
day-in-and-day-out realities that uh, define our lives, and more specifically, define us, make us who we are. They shape the person that we're becoming. And so each year, with a fresh start like a new year, we're given opportunities to reflect and contemplate both the life we've lived in the past and the life we're purposing to live in the future. Every new year, I'm drawn to two familiar passages of Scripture as I think about what I want. If you'll excuse me for a minute, I'm going to shift this so I don't kick it over. Um, two passages of Scripture, one from John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. In verse 4, Jesus prays, kind of looking back on his life, uh, that he has uh, glorified God uh, on this earth, having, and then summary statement, having completed the work that God gave him to do. That's a pretty significant statement. I've lived my life in such a way that I completed the work that God gave me to do. Unless we think that this is just something that the Son of God can say, it seems that Paul does something very similar as his life draws to a close. He summarizes, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. With each passing year, there's greater weight on us to, to desire to be found faithful, to accomplish the work that God has given us to do, to spend our lives in ways that matter. And then there's the second passage, the one that I want us to consider in our sermon this morning, and it is in many ways the answer to how do we do that? How do you live a life that looks back and says, I've done what God gave me to do, finished the race, I've kept the faith? How do we keep the faith? Before we read this morning's passage, I want you to consider the temptation of how you might fill in the answer to that question. What do I do to be found faithful? There's pressure to think that the answer to fulfilling God's work in your life or to being faithful is some new secret formula, such as our world. A magic pill, a secret sauce, a new method or technique designed to introduce something new and different. And the same dynamic easily creeps into our spiritual lives. We think that we need something new, something unique, something creative to jumpstart our spiritual lives and propel us to faithfulness. In light of this angst for something new, I want you to consider Jesus' famous words from our passage of this morning in John 15. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can open there. These are going to be familiar words to many of you who are familiar, who've grown up in and around the church. They're familiar both because they're talked about often and because Jesus paints such a beautiful picture uh, in these verses. John 15, middle of uh, John's gospel for us, we're given this illustration of faithfulness to God, pictured as a vine and branches. I'll read the entirety of the text, and then we'll come back and talk about it. I'm reading from John 15, beginning in verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. He prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you Remain in me. 
I'm the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch. He withers. They gather them. They throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and that you prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I also have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one, is, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore, because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends, because I've made known to you everything that I heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed that you go and produce fruit, and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. To expose what Jesus is saying here, I want to ask and answer five questions for us this morning. And I want to start with the end of the process that Jesus is attempting to define and then kind of work our way backward. The first question is pretty simple and straightforward. It's this question. What does Jesus want for our lives? And here I'm speaking specifically to believers. What does he want for those of us who know him? This answer is given in crystal clarity in the text. Jesus wants fruit. He wants fruitfulness from our lives. Consider in verse 2. He says he prunes branches so that what? They would produce fruit. In verse 4, a branch can't produce fruit unless it's connected to the vine. In verse 5, a branch that remains connected to the vine produces, here, much fruit. Verse 8, the Father, explicitly stated here, the Father wants you to produce much fruit. And then verse 16, the most explicit of all statements. I appointed you to go and produce fruit, and that you would produce the kind of fruit that remains. The answer is pretty clear. Jesus' desire for us is that our lives would be fruitful, which then leads to the second question. What is this fruit? If Jesus' desire is clear from the text, he wants his people to be fruitful, then we would be right to ask, well, what kind of fruit is he seeking for me? And this is actually the more difficult, most difficult question of the morning to answer from the passage alone because the text itself doesn't specifically define the fruit. I mean, reread the, those 17 verses, Jesus doesn't explicitly say, here's the kind of fruit that I'm seeking. But I think verse 12, if you look back in your text, kind of knows in Bible this morning, if you look in verse 12, 
I think Jesus does begin to make a clear connection for us that certainly seems to make sense if we consider the totality of the New Testament writing. In verse 12, he makes what seems like a little odd stutter step by saying, what I'm asking is that you love one another as I have loved you. And then notice the concluding statement, bracketing here, in verse 17, kind of the mic drop statement of the prayer. What what am I after? Well, I'm after you loving one another. This connection isn't immediately obvious. Why fruit linked with love? It seems here, to me at least, that Jesus is defining fruitfulness for us with love. That love is definitional of the kind of fruit that he's seeking to see demonstrated from our lives, and particularly here, love for one another, love for other believers. Now, why did I say at the beginning this really makes sense when we consider the totality of the New Testament writing? Think about perhaps the most famous biblical passage that uses the language of fruit, taken from Galatians 5, right? Paul's summary statement. When we consider the fruit of unrighteousness, or the results, the deeds of unrighteousness, contrasted with what? The fruit of the Spirit, right? And there we get a list. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit here, as Jesus defines it, and as Paul defines it, is an inner quality of the heart. It's virtue. It's character. And it's worth pausing at this point to press home this point, because we're tempted to equate fruitfulness, spiritual growth with activity. Things God wants me to do. God wants me to read my Bible more in 2022. He wants me to go to church more often. He wants me to clean up my life from secret sin. Yes, of course God wants those things. But why? God wants those things because he wants to grow our hearts He wants to nurture our capacity to love. He wants to produce a a better version of you. God's primary outcome for our lives isn't so much the things he wants us to do as it is the type of person he wants us to become. Now, clearly, these internal virtues are going to have external manifestations can have a heart for love that doesn't do deeds of love. In fact, Jesus explicitly says that in the text. What does love look like? It looks like laying down your life for your friends, right? But the path to these actions isn't by focusing on the action. It isn't a New Year's resolution list amounting to 10 ways that I'm going to lay down my life for my friends. Rather, It's focusing on becoming the kind of person for whom these types of actions would be normal. And I think that's an important place to pause. 
How do you foster the kind of heart from which loving deeds is the habitual natural thing that you would do? This is what God wants to produce in us. He wants to turn us into the kind of people who have reflexive activity that's compelled by love, joy, peace, patience, and the like. Which then leads to the third question. Why does he want this? Why does he want this? What what does he want? He wants fruit. What's the fruit? It's not primarily the things we do, but the person we're becoming. He wants to cultivate our heart, increase our heart, create habitual activity motivated by our heart. Why does he want this? Look in verse 8. He wants this because it brings glory to the Father. He wants this because this type of activity, you being a loving, joyful, peaceful, self-controlled person, actually makes God look good. Again, this point makes really good sense when considering the language that Paul uses in Galatians 5. What is it? It is fruit of the Spirit. Well, what's the point there? The point is that this fruit is produced primarily not by you, but by the Spirit of God working in and through you. This is why Paul would write elsewhere, we don't quench the Spirit because it's the Spirit that's producing the kinds of characteristics we want to see. Meaning, these things can't be produced apart from the Spirit. And meaning, conversely, that when a life consistently demonstrates these things, it's clear that God's Spirit is active at work in the person, which results in God getting the praise. Yesterday at my house, you might have seen online, we got a new dining room table. I say we got a new dining room table because I paid someone else to build a dining room table for us. The table shows up at our house Who gets the credit? Well, in a sense, the table flows through me. It was a gift given by me. It was a design that I had in mind. But it flowed through my hands. I was not the one that produced the table. The table reflects on the craftsmanship of another. In a similar way, Any virtuous deed that you're producing comes through you, but from another source. Love for the marginalized. Care for someone who's suffering. Generosity with your resources. It flows through you, but it points back to the one who is in the workshop of your heart, actively working to produce the kind of person who would do those things. Thus, Your life makes God look good, which is a really good mission statement for life. I want to finish in such a way that my life makes God look good. This seems to be a connecting point that that Jesus and Paul make. Not only does our life make make God look good, but our life makes God look good to other people who take notice. Consider Matthew 5, 16, the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works, and do what? Give glory to God the Father. Or 1 Peter 2, 
conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, meaning the outsiders, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works. Anybody know how that passage ends? They will see your good works and glorify God on the day when he visits. So your life makes God look good to other people. Which then leads to the question you should be asking. Well, if that's true, he wants fruit, and that fruit is a heart, and that heart makes God look good. How do I get that? Like, how do I get that? That sounds really compelling. How do I produce this kind of fruit? This is the most obvious answer from the passage, right? In fact, it seems like this is Jesus' main focus. It's the entire point of the object lesson. Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. Branches produce fruit. So if you chop the branch off the vine, then it's impossible to get fruit. After all, a branch can't produce fruit by itself. Or more strongly, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything. Here, nothing is defined as produce fruit, which is what he's wanting from your life. And that fruit is a heart for others. And that heart for others reflects back, makes God look good. So you can't do any of that apart from him. Can't get that outcome without the vine. Which then is Jesus' answer to how do we produce fruit? It's really straightforward. Remain in him. Verse 4. Remain in me. Verse 5. The one who remains in me and I in him is the one who bears fruit. Verse 6. If you don't remain in me, you're going to prove to not be one of my disciples. Thus, you're going to be removed and thrown into the fire. Verse 7. If you remain in me, you can have confidence in prayer. Verse 9. Remain in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you're proving to remain in me. How do we produce fruit in 2022? It's the exact same way you produced fruit in 2016 or 2009 or whatever year you live. The process doesn't change. You remain in him. In fact, some of your translations give maybe a more vivid word here, some of the ways you memorize this passage. The language is abide in me. Dwell in, in me. Be with me. You may have had this experience uh, over the holidays. Have you ever gone back to your childhood home? Gone back and driven around and uh, maybe after not being there for a while. And you have this feeling of nostalgia, right? Something, even if it's changed markedly, you, you remember episodes that kind of bubble back. And with that, for most of us, comes some pretty strong emotion that's attached to the place. Particularly if you lived in a place for any extended period of time, something happened, no matter how whacked out the place was, that formed you, right? Now contrast that, I bet you, many of you have this experience, with going to visit a place that is not home. Maybe you had to do that over the holidays. You had to sleep in the spare bedroom, somebody else's house. 
Maybe you were traveling out of town and you had to get a hotel room uh, to go see some family members or friends. Maybe you rented an Airbnb to stay for a little bit of time in another place. Try as you might, even in the language they use, I don't care how many Homewood suites we have, these places simply aren't home. Even if the accommodations were nice, or nicer than the accommodations you're accustomed to, there's something significant about the place that you live. You and it infuse. You become one. This is my place, and it shapes me in such a way that my heart gets connected to it. Even better, consider how not just the place shapes you, but the people in that place shape you. You were formed not merely by the place that you lived, but with the people with whom you lived with. You become like them. They rub off on you. And that nostalgia of the place of your home often is connected to the people that were there. And in many cases, a, a loved one that has since passed, that's deceit, and you remit, all those emotions flood back. That was a place, and these were the people, and that was shaping me in a way that I didn't even know at the time. This is the perennial parenting challenge in the teenage years, right? Be careful who you hang around with, so whether you like it or not, they're shaping you. You will become like them. You can't not become like them. So choose wisely. This is a picture of the life that Jesus is desiring for us. He wants us to abide with him in such a way that though we might not appreciate all that's going on at any given time, our hearts are being shaped by our proximity to him. This is a contrast of life that is formed by abiding with Jesus and lives that casually drop in on Jesus' stuff from time to time. If you treat proximity to Jesus the way you treat the Homewood Suites or an Airbnb or the guest room at your mother-in-law's place, your heart will never be formed in the way that God intends. It's got to be home. And as it becomes home, change happens to you in a way that you don't even appreciate at the time. And here the application points are obvious, but sadly they're not glamorous. They're vital, but there's nothing original here. They're necessary, but they're not complicated. How do you remain? How do you abide? Cultivate a life of active prayerfulness this year. Slow down and reflect on God's faithfulness with journaling and silence to start each morning. Read your Bible a little bit each day and grab a nugget of truth that you can hang on to. Find time each day to sing a song of praise to God. Show up for church, even if you don't want to. And when you show up, really show up. And ask how you can use your gifts to serve other people. Talk about Jesus. Even to people that don't know Jesus. Or especially to people that don't know Jesus. And tell a few other people why Jesus is good news 
for you. These are the ancient paths to remaining in Christ. And this is what he holds out for us at the start of each new year and frankly each new week and each new day. There's no magic pill. Lastly, what is the outcome of this kind of life? What does Jesus want? Fruit. What is fruit? A heart of love. What happens if we have a heart of love? The Father is glorified. How do we get to the Father being glorified? We remain in Christ. And what happens if we do this? What's the outcome of this type of life? Look in verse 11. What does Jesus say? He says that his joy may be in us and his joy would be complete through us. The outcome of this type of life is joy. It's the Father's joy given to us through Christ. This is an interesting place to end because it's actually the end that everybody is seeking in a New Year's resolution, isn't it? Nobody makes a resolution that they think is just going to make them miserable. I mean, even if it's diet or exercise, we're doing it for the outcome of producing something good. We want joy. We want things to produce joy. And if we're honest, we want a whole lot of joy. Not just a little bit of joy, but full, complete, not lacking joy. So how do you get it? Jesus reminds us once again that this joy is produced by Jesus. It's sharing in Jesus' joy. And it's encouraging for me to note that Jesus' joy is made complete when we live these kind of lives. He takes joy in the fruitful lives of his children. Why? Back where we started. Because it makes his father look good which is exactly why he created all of us to begin with. So that the Father would be seen. So that image bearers would reflect the glory of the Father. So when he sees his children producing the kind of actions that make the Father look good, this brings Jesus joy. And again, lest you think it's just something that's attached to Jesus, consider First John, or I'm sorry, Third John one four. There, the writer says, "I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth." Joy is produced when people live fruitful lives. Joy in Jesus, joy in others, because we're doing what we were created to do. This morning, we have the steady reminder of the Lord's Supper for us. 